Again, welcome to Hammock Street Church. To all of you who are here on site, to all of you who are here online, thank you very much. We're so really pleased. It's just so cool that you come and that you're part of our community and that you make this place what it is. We are um, in the middle of a series that we're calling Big Church, and we've named it Big Church because the ecclesia, the community, the gathering of God's people is a really big thing. It's a really big and important idea. And in this series, we've been going through the book of Acts, A-C-T-S. I always feel like I'm saying Acts, like A-X-E, which would be a really different book than the book of Acts. Anyway, you can find it in the Bible if you want to take a look at it. It's right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then the next book is Acts. The Acts of the Apostles is what it's Short for, it's written by Dr. Luke. Remember Dr. Luke? Luke was a physician. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. People believe that uh, he might have been one of Paul's benefactors. In other words, he sort of funded Paul's missionary journeys. But also, if you recall, Paul had some sort of ailment, a chronic ailment. We don't know what it is. The Bible doesn't give us much detail. But probably Luke traveled around with him so he could also tend to uh, Paul's situation. But the book of Acts stands as the best authority available to us that chronicles the early days of the Jesus movement. Call it Christianity, if you will. We'll talk about that one of these days. But the Jesus movement is actually a better description. And it was a movement that had grown from 12 apostles, 12 disciples, to now nearly one-third of the world's population professes faith in Jesus. So in this series, we're addressing The question of how, how in the world did the message and gospel of Jesus ever survive the first century? How did it even survive Rome? Or how did it survive its opponents in the first century Jewish community? The question we're asking is how did this group of people who believe this crazy notion that a man got up from the grave and walked right there in the city where they lived, How did that ever begin a movement? And how did that ever sustain a movement that not only survived all the attacks that were leveled at it during the first century, but became the most influential faith in the world? How did that happen? The answer, in large part, is that among those of us who are believers, among those of us who have admitted that we're all sinners and that we're all totally incapable of living the perfect life that would be necessary for us to be in communion with the perfect God, for those of us who admitted that we sin and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ, that Jesus lived the perfect life that we're incapable of living and then died on a cross for us, paying the penalty for our sins. And he was buried, but he rose from the dead and he appeared to hundreds. We saw that a few weeks ago. And then he ascended to heaven and now he sits at the right hand of God the Father. So if we've admitted our sin, we've believed in Jesus and we've committed our lives to God, through Jesus, so we can enjoy God's gift of eternal life, then then we take the clear and authoritative word of the people who were there. We're talking about people who were eyewitnesses to this resurrection. They saw firsthand the way God had superintended this whole thing. Well, 2,000 years ago, a group of people poured into the streets of Jerusalem just about two months after the resurrection and said that Jesus, who was crucified right where they were, like right outside the walls where they were standing, and rose from the dead right near where they were standing, they saw it with their own eyes. And with that, 
Jerusalem was turned upside down. It would just be a few weeks before 5,000 men, plus women, plus children, so we're talking probably about over 10,000 people had embraced that idea that Jesus was God's chosen Savior, Messiah, and the fulfillment of the ancient hope of the Jewish people. The Jewish people had been waiting for that Messiah for, for over 1,000 years. The long-awaited Messiah had come to Israel and died on the cross for the sins of the world, and then he'd risen from the dead, and Jerusalem was just rocked. They couldn't believe what had happened. And so during that time, there was a lot of enthusiasm, but there was a lot of conflict as the Jesus movement was beginning to grow, and it sort of infringed upon and ultimately toppled this delicate power balance between Rome and the Jewish temple leaders. And then all of a sudden, this new movement that they called the way, remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. This movement was called the way. Suddenly, it was threatening their entire worldview, the entire worldview of the Romans, the entire worldview of the Jewish leaders, and that led to persecution, and that led to resistance. We've talked about during this series how the apostles were arrested and they were flogged. Remember, that's being whipped with that whip called the cat of nine tails, which is the whip with those really sharp implements on it, bone and glass and metal that just tore the skin off the back of the person being whipped. We saw how they were flogged almost to the point of death. And then we talked about how they were sent back to their homes with distinct orders. They were told, listen, you can go home. We won't kill you right now, but never speak the name again. Speak the name of Jesus again. Never talk about his resurrection ever again. And then we saw that that didn't dissuade them that they were so fired up for Jesus, they were so bold for Jesus, that they couldn't comply. We've also seen in this series how the movement began to develop some structure, which, by the way, led to more persecution. We talked about Stephen. We talked about his death. That made him the first martyr of the church, the first person to die for a faith in Jesus. And we were introduced to a very new force in this fledgling movement. The force came in the form of a man whose Hebrew name was Shaul, or Saul, and we know him as Paul, which is his Greek and Roman name. Luke told us how Paul and other Pharisees, Pharisees were the political party that was the most religiously observant. It comes from the Hebrew root parashim, which means to be separated from. So they were separated from the entire mass of the Jewish population because they were special. They were really holy, and they continued to persecute the followers of Jesus and the believers in Jesus that were scattered throughout the known world because they were sharing the story of their movement everywhere they went. We've been looking at how a Jewish carpenter named Jesus was sent from God and killed by the Romans at the prompting of the Jewish leaders, but he rose from the dead. All of the testimony to this risen Savior came from eyewitnesses or came from people who spoke with eyewitnesses. Then last week, we saw something amazing happen. That Pharisee, that persecutor, Paul, had an incredible conversion. Remember, we talked about it. Paul was literally blinded by the light. And I said last week that the song was written by Manfred Mann. It was not. Cameron has shown me the light. It was made popular by Manfred Mann and written by a young Bruce Springsteen. Good, some of you guys knew that. 
Paul, blinded by the light, fell off his donkey. He was miraculously healed, and then he became the world's biggest advocate for the way. He became an advocate for the exact thing that he was persecuting. Then Paul decided to take this message out of the area where they all were in Judea and spread it throughout the known Greek world, throughout Turkey and and then Greece and all along the Mediterranean Rim. And as Paul traveled, he established communities, ecclesias. He planted churches wherever he went. And for years, he traveled in this dangerous part of the world and told everyone how God had done something extraordinary, how God had solved the problem of sin and obedience to the letter of the law and solved the problem of striving to meet God's expectations. And God solved all of these problems by sending his son into the world, which brings us to our story today. So, while Paul was off doing all that stuff, all the stuff we just talked about, back home in Jerusalem, a controversy had begun to brew. It was a controversy that has a relevance for us today. Now, this controversy arose about 20 years after Jesus came back from the dead. It arose just after Paul had completed what we call his first missionary journey on which he was busy spreading the gospel, the good news about God's provision of a savior among larger and larger crowds of Gentiles. Remember, Gentile, which comes from the Hebrew word goyim, which just refers to the nations of people that are other than the nation of Israel. So the way the nation of Israel, the Jewish people look at it, it's you're either A Jew or your goyim, your others, you're a Gentile. And the controversy centered on the question of how do you belong to the ecclesia? How do you become a part of the church? Who should be a part of the church? Or who gets into the church? Or how good does one have to be to get into the church? Or how many rules does one have to keep to get into the church? Or how holy does one have to be to get into the church? Or how much of one's lifestyle do you have to change before you get accepted into that ecclesia, into that community? Now, in the first century, these questions are pretty darn important. Why? Well, think of it this way. Jesus' arrival fulfilled a centuries-old Jewish prophecy. Jesus had come along as the much-awaited Messiah, the Savior, the Jewish Savior, whom the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, foretold would come to set his people free. So to many, that meant that the Jewish people were the exclusive recipients of this Savior, And membership in the Jewish community, therefore, attached to a long list of requirements to belong to the church. What were those requirements? Well, the Jews followed the Ten Commandments. We've heard of the Ten Commandments, right? They're found in the Jewish book of the law, known as the Torah, which we can find in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. So I always remember that the Ten Commandments, 10, are found in Exodus 20. So just multiply it by two, and that's how you remember where the book is. So then there were these Ten Commandments, and then on top of that, there were 613 halakhic laws, which made up the whole universe of laws found in the Hebrew Bible. So the Jewish sages read the Hebrew Bible and they were able to find 613 laws that arose from the words of scripture. And then they 
in their quest to become closer to God, were following and trying to adhere to those laws every single day. By the way, interestingly, the weird word I just said, halakha, that's a Hebrew word, it means the way. Isn't that kind of cool? Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus said, I am halakha, not those 613 laws that you have to follow. Interesting. So when Jesus exclaimed that he was the way, it was reasonable for the Jews to think, well, everybody who follows him must also follow halakhic law, must also follow Jewish law. And from that, it logically follows that many of Jesus' followers believe that in order for a Gentile to follow Jesus, that Gentile had to become a Jew first. That's what made sense to them. After all, Jesus taught this. We read about it in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus made it clear. These laws haven't gone anywhere. I'm just the fulfillment of those laws. Now, all of that might be true, but that's not what the Gentile believers thought they were getting themselves into. They didn't know they had signed on to become Jewish. Why not? Well, because they learned about this faith from the apostle Paul. And Paul led them to believe the opposite. Paul actually assured them that Jesus died for their sins so that they could have peace with God through grace and through forgiveness provided by Jesus. So, who told them the truth? Was it the Jewish leaders or was it Paul? Were they saved by God's grace and forgiveness once they professed their faith in Jesus or did they need to first become biblically obedient Jews before they could even get started, before they could be even, even be granted admission. Now, before I go on, I want you to notice something. Today, 2,000 years later, we still struggle with the very same question. We know about God's grace through Jesus. We know that God bids us to come to him just as we are, but we also know about God's truth, the, the Bible, the truth of the word that tells us that there's an ethical and there is a moral standard that we're to endeavor to live up to. See, we, if you've been in the church sometime, we know there's some do's and don'ts that we need to follow. And as such, we often find ourselves in this conundrum, in this, we're stuck in a place. There's this moral imperative part of Christianity but at the same time, there's a message of grace and forgiveness. So which one is it? Do we have to maintain the moral standard or can we be forgiven? And quite frankly, it's this conundrum that keeps a lot of people away from a lot of churches. Because there is a conflict, an inherent conflict between grace on the one hand and truth on the other. Because most people hate conflict, they just don't engage. I don't want to work with this grace and truth thing. It's just too confusing. So most people just pick a side and then they camp out where they feel the safest. And here's what I mean by that. Some gravitate towards what I'll call a truth church. A, if you want to follow Jesus, here are the things you need to do first, church. A, if you want to follow Jesus first, you need to stop cursing. You need to not drink so much. You need to get a haircut. You need to dress differently. Some of those churches attract some people. And then other people lean toward a grace church, which is a do-whatever-you-feel church. Uh, just live your own truth church. Uh, how about you? What about you kind of church? 
But that's not what Jesus came to establish, neither of those. Jesus, who was God that became flesh, who was God that entered time and space as the perfect man who came to save very imperfect sinners. He wasn't one way or the other. He wasn't truth or grace. Jesus was both. Jesus was the fullness of both grace and truth. And don't miss this. Jesus isn't the balance of grace and truth. It wasn't 50% grace, 50% truth. Jesus was the full embodiment, 100% grace and 100% truth. How does that work? I don't know. You don't know either. This is a tough one. Put this on your list of questions to ask God when you get to heaven. Hey, could you explain the grace and truth thing? I don't get it. None of us will ever understand it on this side of heaven. But here's something we can know. Here's something we can understand. Amazing things happen when we, as the community of God's people, get this right. When the ecclesia, the community of God's people, learns to avoid the big drift. When we come together in the name of Jesus, we should be the embodiment of grace and truth in such a way that neither forgiveness nor grace are overly simplified. When grace and truth coexist in an ecclesia, what happens? God is glorified and God's people are blessed. And that's the issue. That's the very issue, this ever-present tension between grace and truth that the early church was trying to reconcile, that the early church was trying to deal with. So let's pray. And then we'll take a close look at the very first church-wide business meeting. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning. We thank you for the community that you built here at Hammock Street. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to celebrate who you are, to worship you in song, and to listen to your word, to have it impact our hearts, impact our lives, change us from the inside out so that we can draw closer to you. God, as we continue on this morning, we ask that you would give us a new insight and change us in Jesus' name. Amen. So to do this, we're going to continue on in the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 15. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you're welcome to open that, or you can just follow along. Trust that I put the verses correctly up there on the screen. And I'm going to start by reading the story. But before I begin the story, I need to issue a little warning. If you have your kids here, you might, not will, and I promise you it's not going to be anything horrible, but you might have to explain a few things. This could be a little sensitive for some of the young'uns around here. I'm looking around, there are a few of you. You're probably going to be okay. Let's say the verses we're going to be looking at, the topic is a little PG-13, okay? It's in the Bible. I'm not making it up. I have to read it. I'm not going out of my way to make it more explicit than it is but we're going to spend a little time focusing on the implications of an issue that the early church was facing. And again, if your kids are paying attention, they might ask you questions. So if you're concerned, sorry again for doing that to you, feel free to take your kids upstairs to the kids' ministry if you want, HSC Kids. Let them wear your AirPods for a minute or two until the coast is clear. But again, just want to put it out there. All right? We good? All right, let's dig in. Here we go. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. 
certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. By the way, Antioch is the region where the word Christian was first moved, uh, used to refer to the people following the way. Just so you know, that word is used very sparingly in the scripture. It's actually used only three times in the New Testament. And two of the times, it's somewhat derogatory. It's used by outsiders describing the people who follow Jesus. And it was sort of, a little stink was added to it. There's Christians like that when they said it, just so you know. Anyway, they were teaching the believers. So there's this group of Jewish believers. They'd gone from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch, by the way, is a city located where Syria is now, so modern-day Syria. And they were teaching the new believers in Antioch all about Jesus. Well, the Jewish believers said to the new Gentile believers this, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This was news to the Gentile converts. You see, before those Jewish believers sort of taught that, to them, Paul had already taught them. Paul had already been there on his first missionary journey. And he had taught the Gentiles in Antioch that a person became a follower of Jesus by turning from their sin, by accepting Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and by submitting their lives to his lordship. They said, that's all you need to do to become a follower of Jesus. According to Paul, there was nothing further that was required from them for salvation. But some of the Jewish believers who followed after Paul came after and they taught the Gentile believers that Paul left something out, the surgery part. Hmm. Now, I imagine the new Gentile believers were pretty confused. Like, I imagine the Gentile believers were going, hmm, wait a minute. I remember Paul talking about the resurrection and faith in Jesus and God's grace and the forgiveness of sin, but I don't recall him mentioning any need for surgery especially surgery down there. I feel like I would have remembered that one. Wouldn't that make for a very different new members class? <laughs> I'm thinking we get a lot of women and children, but very few men in that class is what I'm thinking. Anyway, before long, Paul received word that that was happening. Paul found out, oh my gosh, this is what they're teaching the new Gentile converts. So, in verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas, they were traveling together, into sharp dispute and debate with them. The them is the people who were teaching that on top of what Paul taught, grace, grace and faith. And here's what happened. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem. By the way, they always say up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem sits on a hill. So whether you're coming from the south or the north, that's irrelevant. They're talking about going up to Jerusalem. You've got to climb up to get to Jerusalem. So to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. All right, so they're going to say, wait, wait a minute. I don't really appreciate what these Gentile believers have been taught. So he and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to meet sort of with the executive committee of the church. At the time, they were going to get things sorted, all right? So that's where we are. We skip over to verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the ecclesias. It'll say churches in your Bible. Remember, we talked about that. The word church is actually the better, uh, the better definition is community because the word is ecclesia. So the followers of the way in Jerusalem, not an organization, not a building, but the followers, the ecclesia, welcomed them. 
and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem and he explains to them that for nearly two years, he had been planting churches, starting communities of believers and Gentiles from all over the region were embracing the message of Jesus and seeing God's work in their lives. Paul never told them that they needed to become Jewish. They needed to be circumcised before they came to Jesus. And as a result, Paul was confused, or Paul was concerned about sending confusing messages to the Gentiles. That's why Paul is making this report. Okay, so you with me? That's how we got a conflict. Some, Paul was teaching grace, faith, truth. The Jewish believers are teaching and surgery. Okay, got all that? Now, watch this. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Okay, we just talked about them. That's the ultra-observant, ultra-religious party of Jewish people. Remember them? They were the ones responsible for Jesus' death. Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, even those people, even the Pharisees, couldn't deny that Jesus was who he said he was, that Jesus indeed was the Messiah. You know, when you rise from the dead, it's pretty darn compelling. Well, they couldn't avoid it, and they became followers of the way, but they also retained their way of thinking, their pharisaical way of thinking. And they couldn't let go of the notion that if the Gentiles wanted to become followers of the Jewish Messiah, they needed to become Jews as well. So that's the fight. Do you need to become Jewish, or can you remain essentially Gentile without becoming Jewish? So we move on. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. What's the law of Moses? That's what we talked about a few minutes ago. That's the 613 halakhic laws that we've just mentioned. So in essence, those Pharisees who'd become followers of Jesus were insisting that Paul now go back to these new Gentile converts and tell them that if you want to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, you need to live a life of an observant Jew. You need to learn to obey the 613 halakhic laws, and you need a little surgery. Now, for us, with 2,000 years of this not being the way things are, even the idea of it sounds pretty outrageous to us, doesn't it? Can you imagine if that was a requirement in church? But is it outrageous? See, if we're not paying attention, it's easier for us to attach similar pharisaical requirements onto faith in today's world as well. Whenever we find ourselves judging the sincerity of somebody's faith experience or the, or the veracity, the truth of someone's faith in Jesus Whenever we judge any of that, or whenever we, we look at someone's outward appearance, we see somebody that looks different from us, or dresses different from us, or has tattoos, or piercings, or wears clothes that we wouldn't wear, and we think of ourselves better than them, if, if, we, if we say to ourselves, you know, if they really believed in Jesus, they wouldn't do that. When we do things like that, that's exactly what we're doing is we're being just like those Pharisees, and we're saying, eh, before you come in here, you need to clean up a little bit of that act before we let you in the club. So let's be careful to not do that, okay? Dun, 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 dun. See, there you go. That was a public service announcement. So 
How did they address the issue? Well, it's a long issue, but I'm gonna summarize it here as we move along, so let's go to verse seven. After much discussion, so they're at this church business meeting, the Jerusalem council, and they're back and forth, and they're having these discussions, and then Peter gets up. Peter is the leader of the community, the ecclesia in Jerusalem. If you came from a Catholic background, you know that Peter was considered the first pope. So that kind of gives you an idea, at least, of where Peter stood in the hierarchy of the community. Peter was considered the leader. So Peter got up and addressed them. So here's what Peter said. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips. In other words, it's not just Paul who was saying it. Peter said it also. Peter also said to the Gentiles, about, told them about the message of the gospel the grace and the faith that we talked about, the message of the gospel and belief. Peter gave the council a little history lesson at that time and reminded them of the way that God had already worked among the Gentiles. And then Peter got down to sort of the, the crux of the issue. Those Gentiles weren't saved by their scrupulous observance of the Hebrew law. They were saved because, in verse eight, because God knows the heart. God knew their heart. God knew that their confession was true. God knew that their conversion was true. God knows the heart. But we can't. We can never know somebody's heart. We can barely know our own hearts. Now, we can see things about people. We can see how they behave. We can see how they look. We can, we can see what kind of preferences they have, what sort of media they like, what sort of music they like. We can't know their heart. But God can, and God does, and God showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us, just as he did to the Jewish believers. So hearing that, everybody kind of leaned up, okay, we're listening, verse 9, so God made no distinction between us, that's the Jewish obedient to the law apostles who've been keeping the law their entire lives. So God made no distinction between us, the observant Jews, and them, that's the Gentiles, because God purified their hearts by faith. You see that? It didn't matter whether the Jews were being observant and the Gentiles weren't. God had purified all of their hearts by faith. And I'm thinking that the Pharisees who are out there among the believers were going, yeah, that's not going to do it for me. Still not satisfied. They're probably going, okay, yeah, okay, God might have purified their heart. They still have a long way to go. They have some pretty unacceptable habits that we just don't want in our church. We just don't want in our ecclesia. Do you see what the food they eat? Ugh, they eat lobster and pork. You see the clothes they wear? Oh my gosh, they mix fibers cotton and wool in the same garment. Ugh, that's disgusting. That is actually a thing. They really don't mix fibers. Really weird. They say all the wrong things. You ever hear them talk? You ever hear the words they use, the language they use? They do it all the time. Come on, Pete. You got to be kidding us. You, you can't let them in. You have to admit they're pretty offensive, those Gentiles. To which Peter reminded them of the mission, of the movement, by asking them a critical question. We go to verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of these disciples, that's these Gentile believers, a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. All right, what's Peter saying here? He's saying, listen up, you ethnic Jews that were raised with the law, that were raised on the law. Do you keep the law? You've known it your whole lives. How are you doing keeping it? You keeping all those 13 commandments? No, you're not. 
You're not doing it. You can't do it. Nobody can do it. So why, if you can't do it, someone who's raised on it, someone who's known it his whole life, if you can't keep that law, why would we insist that the Gentiles, who know virtually nothing about Hebrew law, why should we insist that they keep the law? And in response, the Jews said, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So do you realize what they were admitting here? They were admitting that God can purify a person's heart before the person purifies their life. And that is huge. God requires no one to have a pure life before he saves them, before he purifies their heart. That means that you can come into the community, you can come into the ecclesia, you can come to church, even if you don't believe the whole thing. God gets to you. He does. He doesn't require it for entry. And if God can do that, For those Gentile believers, he can do that for everybody, and he can do that for everybody even today. Listen, if you're out there inviting people to church, first off, thank you. I appreciate that. Everybody, please do that. Secondly, I'm telling you, the the more fun thing to do is find somebody out there that looks like they would never go to church in their entire life and invite them. I was in Publix not long ago, and I'm checking out, and there's a couple standing in front of me, and, and the man of the couple, the guy, was huge, huge. It had to be 6'6", at least, maybe taller. I'm six feet tall. I was doing this, looking at him, wearing a tank top, just tatted up. He did not have a happy face. He had sort of an angry look to him. And he was with a a woman, I'm assuming wife or girlfriend, also equally um, tatted up, and she had a bunch of cool piercings and stuff like that, much smaller. And and so I, I turned to them and I said, wow, you guys have an awesome vibe. You have an awesome look. Where do you go to church? And the guy looked, yeah, whoa, is right. The guy looked down at me, kind of scowled. And and she came over to me and kind of whispered in my ear, thank you for asking. We don't go to church, but I'd love for him to go. I gave him a card. I invited him to church. No, they haven't showed up, but you get used to that. But you know what? If they came in, wouldn't that have been awesome? That's how it works. God purifies people's hearts before he purifies their lives. He'll change them before they decide to change anything about how they're living. And if he can do that for them, he can do that for everybody, even today. I I encourage you, go to Acts 15, read the whole thing yourself. It's pretty cool. We just don't have time to do it today. So, toward the end of Peter's message, James. Remember James? He's Jesus' younger brother. He stood up. Can you imagine how much convincing it would take for you to believe that your older brother was the savior of the world? Like, really? I I grew up with this guy. You're telling me you think he's the savior? He's perfect, huh? Can you imagine that? That's what James did. James was there. So James stood up, and here's what James said. Again, this is still in Acts 15, verse 19. It is my judgment, James said. In other words, now that we're bringing this conversation to a conclusion. I've been listening to you all. I've heard everything, and I'm going to tell you what I've decided. So this is James going, all right, I've heard everything. Here's what I think. He says, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's what he said to these Jewish believers. He said, no, 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 no. You are not imposing on them a requirement of following 613 laws. You're not imposing on them 
any surgery. We're not gonna make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Don't miss how important that is that James said that. James, the brother of Jesus, understood the issue. James was well acquainted with God the Father. James was well acquainted with his brother Jesus. James was well acquainted with the Jewish law. He was well acquainted with Jesus' call to grace and forgiveness. And he knew that it was inevitable that God's standard, the Jewish law, and Jesus' delivery to the believers of his grace and forgiveness was going to cause conflict and confusion. He knew that that would happen as the Jesus movement spread and as it reached more and more Gentile nations. But in order to keep them going, to keep the movement moving along, James said, anything that makes this difficult, that makes it hard for people to turn to God should be removed. You should get that out of your vocabulary, get that out of your, ver your vernacular, and then scrupulously keep it out. Don't let that creep back in to your faith and to your evangelism. The Jesus movement was, and the Jesus movement remains, a movement about turning lost people to God. So James is telling them that anything we do that makes it unnecessarily difficult goes against God's will. So instead of insisting that anyone first turn their lives around and clean up their acts before they'll be accepted into the ecclesia, Instead of that, we should provide them with, let's just give them an irreducible minimum. Let's just tell them, here are the very few things that you need to sort of buy into to become a follower of the way. That's what he's saying. Not all these laws, we're going to give you just a short list of things that you need to buy into. So here's what James said, verse 20. Instead, we should write to them telling them to, so here's what he's saying, instead of telling them to learn and internalize the 613 halakhic laws, instead of telling them to do that, here's what we're going to tell them to do. Ready? Here it comes. Abstain from the, meat, from the food polluted by idols. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. That is all that was required of the Gentiles to become members of the community, members of the church. That's the whole thing. James took the call for the Gentiles to obey the 613 Jewish laws, and he whittled them down. He winnowed them down to a list of basically two things. Don't do, don't do anything that the Jews find inherently offensive and, and abstain from sexual immorality. That's it. That's what he said. Don't offend the Jews. There's a lot of Jews in this place. Don't offend them and abstain from sexual immorality. That's the whole thing. That's all that was required of the Gentiles to join the club. And he says, you do that, come join the movement. Then James finishes up. They'll be able to comply with those requirements, James is essentially saying, because they know. Moses has been preached, which means the Ten Commandments, which means the, the first five books of the Bible, that's the Torah. Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So he's saying, just do those two things. Because in this movement, you're going to be mingling with Jewish believers. And, and they're really offended by the violations of their food restrictions. They think those are the most offensive violations, so just keep an eye on those. So he put it into a letter, and then they chose a group of people to deliver this letter back to that place in Antioch, where the church, where the ecclesia was gathered, sort of awaiting the news. So here's what's happening. There's a council going on in Jerusalem. What are the requirements to be a Jew? They were told there could be some surgery involved, and so they're kind of waiting in Antioch for the answer. Okay, is an operation necessary? 
Do I need to leave town? What do I do? So they're waiting. They're waiting for the news. Are we going to be included in the ecclesia? Do we need to be obedient to all those laws? Do we need that little operation we talked about? And the, the ecclesia gathered again in Antioch, and they read the letter with great anticipation. And they're all sitting there going, please don't require surgery. Please don't require surgery. Please don't require surgery. And what happened? The people read the letter. And they were glad for its encouraging message. No surgery required. Two laws, not 613. That was close. And with that, the church avoided its first split. A split that was going to be over an inherent conflict between imposing moral imperatives and standards on the people and granting the people grace. Grace won out. The council landed on keeping both in the forefront of the movement while at the same time beginning to effectively navigate the differences without conflict that that practice would bring. They determined going forward that the ecclesia, the church, the community of believers would only thrive if the believers learned to live with both grace and truth. And since then, every generation, including ours, has struggled with the implementation of this very same notion. How much grace? How much truth? How do we put them both together? So as we wrap up, I want to consider, and we'll go quick, I promise, three things that we as God's ecclesia need to avoid drifting towards because we do have a tendency to drift. So here's the first thing. We need to avoid the pull to drift toward insiders, that's everybody here, everybody inside the church, and away from outsiders. Okay, insiders refers to everybody who's already a part of an ecclesia. Now, by the way, that's hard because every church drifts towards becoming insider-focused. You know who I get emails from and letters from if I say something on the weekend that someone doesn't like? Insiders, not outsiders. They don't know what I said. Outsiders aren't coming. They're not asking for my attention. They're not telling me I am wrong. They're not writing me emails. They don't squeak about anything because they don't know. They never get any grease. Squeaky wheels come from the inside. It's easy to forget about the people outside that we're giving our message to, that we're trying to give this life-saving message of salvation to. It's easy to forget about them because we don't see them. We have to purposefully remember who they are so we can give them our attention in order to become and remain a community that embodies fully God's grace and truth, not at one over the other. We have to remain intentional about avoiding the drift toward insiders and ignoring those on the outside. And that's why from the start of the series, we've talked about how we need to be bold. And if we can pray for boldness and continue looking for outside opportunities to share Jesus, then we stay focused where we need to be focused on the lost. Number two, we need to avoid the drift toward law and away from grace. Now, don't misunderstand I'm not talking about changing our theology. I'm not talking about suggesting we need to start trying to work our way into heaven. What I'm saying is, it is the natural tendency of a church to have a lot of strict policies and to establish easy categories into which we can put everybody so we can avoid the difficult task of, avoiding, of, of evaluating people on an individual basis. That's what happened in the early church. 
They had a category for the Jewish believers. They treated them one way, okay? They're keeping the Jewish law. We know they're following the law. They're not eating the wrong things. We know what they're, they're doing. And then they had a category for the Gentile believers. They treated them another way. They said, all right, well, you're not quite there yet. You have to become followers of the law. You have to obey the rules. You have to submit to the policies. And then we'll think about letting you become a part of the church. And those categories, though they make it really easy, because it's very easy to just pick a side and stop thinking, it made it very easy for the believers to avoid the Gentiles and focus on the Jews, it also made them drift away from being a place of grace. It made them drift away from being a place of accepting love to a place where the law is strictly and obsessively applied. And that's not how God works. And if you want an example of that, just look at Jesus and his disciples. Those kind of rules and policies would have kept Matthew out of the 12. He's a tax collector, one of their most reviled kind of sinners. They never would have let him in the club. Or Peter. You ever pay attention to what Peter? Well, Peter was a hothead. Man, they would have kept him out too. Probably Simon the Zealot too. I mean, those guys were wild. But Jesus called them all. He allowed all of them to come to him the way that they needed to come to him. It's probable that Matthew kept collecting taxes for a while. Remember Zacchaeus who became a follower, but remember Zacchaeus was also a Pharisee? Yeah, he probably was still going to the Pharisee meetings. Remember the woman caught in adultery? You ever notice she never says, okay, I'll stop? Jesus told her to stop, but she didn't say, all right. Well, that seems to make for a very messy church. That's the whole point. The church is messy. It's supposed to be messy. And it's messy churches that experience supernatural working of God. Finally, and third, we need to avoid the drift of preserving instead of advancing. You ever notice that once something becomes established, and particularly when a church community becomes established, over time, the community subconsciously switches from growth mode to preservation mode? Anybody have an iPhone? Remember when Steve Jobs was alive? iPhones were just changing incredibly. They changed the landscape of the world. But then when Steve Jobs was done and then they hired somebody to come in and just keep things going, that's what you get a sense of. Nothing's changing. Nothing's advancing. It's just preserving. That's what the ancient Jews did. Even though the ones who came to Jesus were embarking upon this unprecedented journey, they still com felt compelled to, to keep the ancient law, to keep the ancient ways the way that they were. And in order to preserve something that was good something that even Jesus said was worthy of preserving the law, they forgot to advance God's kingdom, which was the purpose of it all. Well, Jesus changed all that. And he's calling us to continue the advance. So our desire to preserve cannot and should not supersede our mission and our passion to advance the cause of Jesus. We need to stay open-handed. You're all welcome. God has given us his blessing and he's called us to this mission so we can reach out to the thousands among us here in South Florida who are lost and in desperate need of Jesus. So as we wrap up, can we make a few commitments to each other today? Here, here's what I'm talking about. Can we commit to be bold? In order to keep from becoming insider focused, we need to be bold. We need to be about inviting others into our fellowship. We need to be bold about the way that we live our lives, for them to see the way that we live our lives, so they can be drawn in, so they can be attracted to our fellowship, so that they can't resist Jesus. We need to be bold about supporting our community here at Hammock Street, so we remain a welcoming place for people who think, I'll never go to church. I'll never like church. Oh, yeah? Check our church out. We need to stay bold. Next, we need to commit to erring on the side of grace. 
when there's a conflict between God's truth and a person who's not quite there yet, we have to make a conscious decision to extend grace. And I want you to think about it this way. Aren't you glad that God extended grace to you? I'm glad he extended grace to me. When we err on the side of grace, we can ensure that our church will never become stuck on categories and policies. And finally, we need to commit to remain open-handed. Let's never become a place that accidentally drifts into a rut where we stop advancing God's kingdom. As James said, let's not make it difficult for anyone who is turning to God. Let's make it easy. Because if we can accomplish these things, God will do amazing things in our midst and God will do amazing things in our area as we remain committed to becoming a part of the big church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our gathering this morning. We thank you for bringing us together for the community that you're building. We thank you that you're showing all of us grace. God, you know all the things we've done, all the things we've said, all the things we've thought. You know that if we had to say those things out loud in a crowd, we'd be so embarrassed we'd never show our faces again. And yet, you've chosen to love us anyway. And you've called us to yourself. So God, as we head out from here this morning, we ask that you give us that heart, that spirit, to reach out with the good news of salvation through Jesus without judgment, without condemnation, and in love. God, we thank you for this time. We look forward to seeing what you'll put before us this week as we draw closer to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.